welcome to the 17th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Rishika Jain from Project 39A. For our new listeners, we are an organization engaged in advocacy and interdisciplinary research on issues to do with the criminal justice system. In today's episode of the Project 39A podcast, we are in conversation with Professor Aya Gruber, who is a professor of law at the University of Colorado. In her recent book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration, Professor Gruber examines and critiques the punitive impulse pervading feminist engagement with issues of sexual and domestic violence. She has previously written extensively on the, on the subject, asking questions about the utility and ideological costs of carceral responses in a fundamentally broken criminal justice system. Today, we will speak to her about her work, her endorsement of what she brands neo-feminism, and what lies ahead for the feminist struggle. Welcome, Professor Gruber, and thank you for agreeing to speak to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So if I could move on to the first question that I wanted to ask you, it's rather general and I'm hoping it will allow you to dive deeper into the work that you do for our listeners. Could you tell us more about neo-feminism and how it merges into or departs from second and third wave feminist ideas? And what should a feminist working in criminal justice reform take away from it? Particularly if you would have any advice um, to the Indian feminist movement, we would love to hear that too. Yeah, so um, I want to start with sort of a big caveat, and that is that my research has primarily been focused on uh, feminist criminal law reform in the United States. And, you know, one of the things that I really want to get across in the book and in my work is that we need to look at very particular situations on the ground in the relevant communities and all the factors that are affecting women and frankly, all people who have been subjected to violence, either state or private, and really get a lay of the land and try to figure out best we can, what are the root and structural causes of this violence and how might law, government and private action intervene? So, I mean, that's in fact one of the big tenets of neo-feminism, right? The reason I, I called it neo-feminism rather than post-feminism, which had been, you know, a term, you know, you know, kind of taking off from Janet Halley's 1996 book about taking a break from feminism. You know, the, the term came up as, oh, we're post-feminist and we're sort of just looking at all the distributions and all the ways in which, you know, people can be winners and losers under a state regime. Well, I chose neo-feminism because I think there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's very good to have organization around a particular site of hierarchy and oppression. And, you know, in the particular case of feminism, that would be uh, gender. That would be, you know, the category woman, whether that category is constructed by, you know, society or people's ideas of biology or culture or whatever it is, you know, I think it's fine. But where, you know, where I really depart from much of mainstream feminism in the United States is this idea that there is man, there is woman, there's a grand 
woman's experience that all women share across the ideological spectrum. And that woman's experience is sort of adverse to men um, in the way that we identify men and private male behavior as the main oppressing force in society. So, you know, part of neo-feminism is this idea that feminist reform and, you know, feminist responses to violences, private, state, corporate, different violences, has to be very granular, has to be very local, has to be very considered. So, you know, I hesitate a little bit, you know, giving sort of generic advice on feminists about what to do, especially feminists, you know, in in regions that are steeped in their own uh, particularities. Um, you know, so I, I would just say that um, my frame would be, you know, to not sort of adopt these orthodoxies, I think, that have really been ingrained in us when we think of ourselves as, as feminists. So that's kind of the, the broad framing advice I would give. Right. That's actually very interesting to me. So you mentioned in your response how your conclusions about, about the problems with feminist engagement with the carceral state are in fact both context-specific and localized to the jurisdiction and to the uh, sort of legal system that you were studying, which is the United States. So. The question that comes to my mind is, in your work, you talk about the inconsistency of criminal law's focus on individual blame with feminism's view of sexual violence as violence that is necessarily and inherently systemic in nature. Um, so yet, and this is something that comes out both in, both in your work as well as your response right now, you hold out hope that there are certain kinds of criminal justice systems um, or that current criminal justice systems can change and become consistent with the feminist project of social transformation. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about what such a criminal justice system, in your opinion, would look like? Like, even, for example, in the context of the US, um, what kind of radical changes would, a criminal, would the criminal justice system uh, would have to make to be able to be to merit feminist engagement in terms of sexual violence? Well, um, you know, a couple things, if I can just give you a really long answer, because there are a few things that, um, you know, that your question brings up, and I'm just kind of going to methodically go through each of those things. But, th but the first thing I want to say is, yes, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, my work is very U.S. centric in the way that I pretty much provided the first and and I, i'm pretty sure the only you know uh, multiple centuries long historical accounting of the relationship between us feminism and the carceral state in the united states which is you know i mean really an an, an embarrassment in the world with just the number of people we incarcerate the conditions of their imprisonment and how racially and socioeconomically biased it is. Um, but that being said, the United States has been a massive and profound exporter of punitive ideology and criminal law programs and logics. Um, and particularly US feminism 
and the powerful feminist groups that, you know, in my book, I talk about allying with prosecutors or even creating new areas of prosecution have been extremely effective, well-funded, um, tenacious in exporting their particular neoliberal um, capitalist and individualistic and punitive brand of feminism. So I do think that, you know, there is something that is, is very important in this tale of American feminism to especially, um, you know, feminists in countries where um, powerful legal actors in those countries tend to look to U.S. legal actors or theorists for guidance. I think, you know, it's, it's really important not to get dazzled by this, you know, extremely well-coordinated effort on the part of U.S. academics and legalists to export a very particular ideological brand of legalism out into the world. Um, so, so let me just like add that caveat. Um, okay, so in terms of my holding out hope for the um, U.S. legal system, I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit uh, to something in in the book uh, to story. I really start the introduction with because I think it underscores um, a big point. I'm trying to get at in the book, which is that notions of what criminal legal institutions and actors do are steeped in mythologies. And a lot of those are post-colonial mythologies. A lot of them are racial mythologies. A lot of them are capitalist mythologies. But we have an idea of what criminal systems do, right? They fight crime. And then we have an idea of what our criminal system could do if better, right? So maybe right now our criminal system, yeah, it fights crime, but it also disproportionately imprisons poor people of color. Um, but to do it better, it would just fight the crime without disproportionately imprisoning poor people of color, right? So those, so those are the kind of the ways our mind operates about the criminal legal system. And this is an amazing feat of colonization. It's a feat of colon, colonization of the mind. Um, because when you look at the US criminal legal system and any criminal legal system, it is a particular institution with a particular history and a particular set of things it does well um, and it does poorly. And I'll tell you something the U.S. criminal legal system does poorly. It is very bad at preventing people from feeling pain, despair, poverty, and death. It is very good at managing outgroups, at managing surplus labor that the capital markets have no use for at the time at squelching dissent. So, so these are the, so when I think of the carceral system, I think now after 20 years of research of an institution that serves certain functions um, that are integral to 
the operation of the current U.S. political system, but aren't necessarily about fighting crime or helping people or saving lives. Um, and so the thought that this institution that is currently serving its function as a governor in the way that the um, society and politics in the U.S. wants it to govern, um, the thought that that's going to somehow be reformed and serve this goal of protecting and helping women and saving them from harm and violence, you know, in a better way, it's it's impossible. Now, that's not to say that we can't have state-run systems and systems that might even have some backing of pain and force, although that I I I, you know, I question whether that's necessary or just part of the mythology. You know, it, it doesn't mean that we can't imagine some role of the government in managing private male violence, right, or cult culturally ordained male violence. I, I think we can. We, we have a robust role for it. it. It just has nothing to do with the carceral state. That That's doing its job right now. Um, so, so that would be my take on that. I, I don't think that the carceral state is broken. Um, so if it's not broken, it can't be fixed. Right. Uh, that's actually given me quite a lot to think about. Um, so while a lot of your work speaks about the co-option of feminism into the carceral project of the state, like you mentioned, um, other authors have also written about the rise of the sexual security regime and the role of feminists, or at least feminist concerns in that rise. Um, so, for example, in India particularly, governments have often responded to high-profile incidents of sexual violence by amping up, you know, the surveillance mechan uh, mechanisms that are present. Um, conversations on hotspot policing and increased patrolling, for example, have also become much more common. The question that I'm sort of trying to build to is, um, given that such schemes often are touted as preventive as opposed to punitive, uh, would these be a better route for feminist engagement, in your opinion? And if not, why is that so? Okay, so, I mean, there's so much packed into that question. Um, a few things. I mean, in terms of technological hotspot policing, that is usually done in response to perceptions of street violence. So we're talking about like, uh, you know, uh, you know, shootings or like uh, gang activity or, you know, sort of rampant, um, you know, burglary, robbery, carjacking, they'll designate these sort of hotspot areas and use various technologies from facial recognition to shots, uh, shot spotter to different sort of like algorithms, and they'll send in the police to those areas. Um, that usually isn't sexual violence because it's, it, you know, you won't have a place known as the, you know, rape, <laughs> the rape hotspot. That that usually doesn't happen. Where I think the surveillance of women goes on um, is sort of twofold in that sort of surveillance state area. Uh, one is the empirical evidence has pretty consistently shown that these technological methods are ineffective. Uh, they lead to a lot of police on citizen violence. 
And because of bad information in, bad information out, they tend to target poor black neighborhoods as a proxy for the hotspots and not actual actually neighborhoods where there's a lot of crime. And they're fairly ineffective at preventing murders. That's just not, it's not the lack of police that causes murder spikes or not. That's a very complex thing. Now, where women come into it is that women are surveilled in these spaces, right? Like, so if you're doing hotspot policing and you're, you know, what I call it a process of blue lining, um, you know, because police in the United States were blue. So there was, um, you know, a term called redlining where the police basically, I'm sorry, where the banks basically redlined areas for, you know, no loans and created the, you know, impoverished black areas in the United States. Well, police then blue line those areas and sort of designate them as degraded spaces of second class citizenship. And, you know, women are in those spaces. So they're being surveilled and abused and everything along with the men. And the second area is one of the things that police love to concentrate on ever since a 1990s, you know, Atlantic article, or I think it was like an 80s, maybe like late 80s, early 90s, Atlantic article touted this idea of like broken windows policing. Well, you know, police want to use visible signs of poverty as a proxy for like where they are going to distribute their violence, their police violence. And one of their favorite visible signs of degradation is sex work. And so you really have this confluence of race and gender and um, moralistic notions about sex you know, melding into a policing regime that, again, is completely working the way it's supposed to. It is managing poor people. And if you manage the poor people, you know, through police violence, maybe they won't notice how unequal society is. So that's what I'll say about um, hotspot policing and surveillance. I don't think they have much to do with preventing crime, again, just like the carceral state don't. They have a lot to do with sort of communications about who's in control, who has second-class citizenship, and who is, you know, entitled to privacy and freedom on the street. The things that prevent um, the most vulnerable women from being subject to both public and private violences, one of the number one, at least in the United States, that's been shown to really um, break cycles of violence for women, whether they're engaged in sex work and there's violence that it, you know, accompanies that work, whether they're subject to domestic violence or rape in the home, whether they're um, you know, in um, situations where um, sexual violence is rampant. One of the things that's been shown very effective in reducing that private violence is shelter. Um, so the more secure shelter that vulnerable women have, uh, the less likely they are to um, experience violence. Now, for vulnerable women, like, for example, sex workers on the street, the only thing the police do is completely terrorize them, um, jail them, make their lives immeasurably worse, and humiliate them. So there's, so there's nothing um, 
that I would think a feminist would want to invest in that. Right. That that answer is really interesting because it um, shifts the frame of the narrative quite completely from this idea of um, preventing preventing sexual assault as opposed to punishing it post fact, and really unpacks the idea of what that prevention entails. Uh, so yeah, I mean, thank you for that. So my next question is about this idea that so you might be aware that laws criminalizing domestic violence in India have been met with a very strong judicial and popular narrative. The large majority of these claims are false anyway, which have which has in turn led to a very chronic problem of under enforcement of these laws. Um, in a similar way, there has been major public backlash recently to a constitutional challenge to the exemption from prosecution granted to marital rape in India, for example. Um, a lot of this really connects um, very well to your writing in a similar context in the US, of course, uh, where you talk about a similar rejection and under enforcement of laws dealing with partner acquaintance rape in the US, while domestic abuse laws on the other hand, have seen relative success there. Um, could you tell us what, in your opinion, sort of drives these contrasting outcomes in the US? And like, could you unpack this a little bit more in terms of what really is the difference in the acceptance between domestic abuse laws versus intimate partner sexual assault? Well, I think that uh, intimate partner sexual assault is kind of absorbed into the domestic violence frame. Um, and so a lot of what happened in domestic violence in the United States is it just got it, it, it got turned into a machine. Right. Like arrests were mandatory. Process was mandatory. You know, um, uh, protection orders were mandatory. Uh, the specialized courts were mandatory, a guilty plea was mandatory, you know, so it, it, it basically became this machine where if um, a woman called the police, you know, that led to criminal processing and there was just not a lot of discretion within it. So you never then were in the trials um, where people could say like, oh, well, why didn't she leave or she's lying or anything like that? And that was sort of the point of the feminist. Well, we think people are really sexist. We think that people like domestic violence. And so we're going to make this criminal system automatic. And when we do, that is the just outcome. And for some people it was, right? Like for some women, they're like, yeah, this is exactly what I want. I want to see this man rot in jail. For a lot of women, it was more complicated than that, right? They um, they were like, well, actually, I wanted violence interruption. I rely on him for my source of income. Maybe I don't want him in jail or maybe I don't want the police to come. Um, and I, you know, I want shelter. I want benefits. So it, you know, so it was a complicated thing. I think one of the, the, the ways in which things got... Um, a little bit off the justice track is that the idea of feminist victory became the idea of just lots of reports and lots of prosecutions and lots of convictions as if that in and of itself is justice. Well, okay. If you just think that 
putting a bunch of people in jail and making a bunch of arrests is justice, then you're done. Right. But, you know, when you go back and look at it, is that actually solving the problem? Is domestic violence decreasing? Are women better off? Are people suffering less? And, you know, the answer to many of those questions is, is no. In fact, there was this huge uh, report done in 2015 by the American Civil Liberties Union, and it found something quite amazing that most of the very vulnerable women just didn't call the police because they didn't want the police in their lives. They didn't want to trigger that machine. They didn't want to get arrested themselves. They didn't trust law enforcement. So this idea that, okay, we got the victory. We've got the convictions. We've got the reporting that's not quote unquote under reporting. If you are looking at the issue of domestic violence from 30,000 feet as a wealthy, you know, uh, non-abused academic, you know, which, you know, again, you know, I can't really speak against the kind of academics that aren't on the ground, but if you're sort of like not even trying to look at it, the point of view from person, a, a person on the ground, you might think to yourself, wow, that's great. Okay. We achieved our goal. Um, you know, and we've achieved legal change. And if that's your frame, that legal change is the end and not the means, then yeah, that's great. But I don't think that's solving the problem. And in fact, as I show my book, that's creating a lot more problems. Now, why that was successful and rape uh, wasn't as successful, you know, I think it's a complicated story in the United States that has to do with culture and debunking and the continued... Um, embarrassment uh, over sex and sexual victimhood. But but I will say this, I think that both the, the quote unquote underreporting, which, you know, I'm not sure it's underreported so much as just not often reported because under implies that you're making a comparison to some other reporting rate and, you know, most thefts aren't reported. So, um, you know, I, th I think what this all exposes is just the inability of the policing and prosecution and incarceration system to deal with women's needs and to be able to handle things like gender violence. Um, you know, when you have a criminal legal contest in the United States, it is the state against an individual person. And frankly, the way that the United States has interpreted that equation since about the 80s is victim versus offender, innocent versus monstrous. And there are two people in that equation and somebody's going down. And if you don't want the man to go down, if you don't want to admit this, you know, upstanding citizen man is the monster that everybody thinks criminals are then you're going to call the woman a liar. And that is what putting all your eggs in that criminal law basket sets up. And, you know, so I just think it's not surprising that a lot of women who have experienced violences at, at different levels, especially ones who have never been served by the very masculine sort of abusive police force right so 
yeah that, that's very interesting um you also talked about the idea that legal change cannot be an end in and of itself and it's rather the means to a larger struggle of social transformation so what my last question to you about this evening would be just the path forward so very specifically what i wanted to ask was do you think the me too movement presented the beginnings of an alternative form of engagement with sexual violence which was perhaps more capable of ideological consistency with feminism's tenets and if it did did it tragically realize this possibility and in what ways did um it do so or not do so is my question yeah it's interesting i i want to go back to one thing that i neglected to mention that you had asked about the security state and about the role of 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 rape and um sort of women and sexual violence in the security state and i think it's really significant to me um the symbolic role that the iconic image at least in the united states of the vulnerable white woman plays in um a lot of our more authoritarian and repressive politics and i'm thinking back to even when donald trump uh, launched his presidency the first thing he said is we can't let in mexicans because they're rapists and this idea of sexual predators being around everywhere and on every street corner um is just an amazingly powerful trope for both men and women it keeps women scared and also um really fuels this very ancient male bravado of protecting women's sexual purity from other men so it it tweaks all those kind of cultural sentiments about sex and conquest and it accrues an enormous amount of power to the government to restrict liberty. So I just think of like women. Um you know studies show that here in the United States um at least and again, you know, there's so much to say that's different about India that is is just, you know, where a lot of this doesn't translate where it might translate. And so you know again, I just add that huge caveat. Um but there is um you know statistics just that are you know unassailable that you know middle-aged non-poor white women or asian women as the case may be like me um are the safest demographic from crime by just a measure just by far and yet they are the most fearful of a random attack yeah there's just no reason for it i mean men especially young men especially young men of color are so have so much more ground to be afraid of the night to want to take back the night from violence than sort of you know non-poor women they're just safe i mean that's the fact of the matter there are um occasions where there are these um really rare random attacks and they get a lot of media coverage but statistics don't lie this is the safest demographic from random attack now i'm not saying there's safest demographic from domestic attack and things like that that's a whole other ball of wax um but in terms of like walking around the streets 
and being afraid of immigrants and needing a, um, you know, a, a facial recognition camera and a cop on every corner or in every subway car. I mean, that is just statistically, they are the people who shouldn't necessarily want that. And yet this idea of ubiquitous male predatory danger on every corner has really amazingly had the profound effect of limiting women's freedoms for centuries. Women self-policed. I'm not going to walk here alone. I'm not going to walk here. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go in this space. I'm not going to go in that space. And women willingly ceded the public forum to men. And all it took was telling them, be scared. And so, you know, I think about that when I think about the security state. Now, that wasn't your last question. Your last question was about Me Too. But I think it's relevant to Me Too because Me Too has both liberatory potential and oppressive potential. The liberatory potential is this. Being able to say Me Too. And not in that Twitter way where if anything ever happened to you, you say me too because you want to get a lot of likes and clicks. But people who have suffered from, from sexual violence, who've held it in, who haven't you know, told anybody who it's causing them pain, can say, you know what? Me too, and it's not my fault. I, you know, This happened to me, but this isn't me. And I shouldn't be ashamed. And I shouldn't have that burden to bear. And that's an amazing liberatory thing. Where it gets complicated for me is number one, it's very carceral. It was all about kind of like, well, now we're going to broaden the rape laws and, and we're going to have this law and that law and report to the police and the police are going to save you. And, you know, look, they put Harvey Weinstein in jail after 72 New York Times reports. They can put anyone in jail. And it's just, you know, simply kind of not true. And then the second, part that worries me is it's an amazing thing to say, I'm a survivor. Like I myself am a survivor of sexual assault and, you know, uh, you know, pretty early on in life. And, and that's something that I think being able to say and be like, wow, you know, that is, um, a something that many other women share and be something that's not my fault. And something that is part of my life story, but isn't me, right? I, I think that's great. But the problem with social media is that everything goes into this echo chamber and then Me Too becomes, okay, somebody, you know, um, cat called me on the street, Me Too. And then it gives people, uh, women, this sense that there's just constant danger and constant perverse sexuality. And, you know, we need protection. And the only protection you can get is from police and prosecutors. And I worry about that. Um, you know, because when you look at how the United States ended up imprisoning most of its people compared to any other, at least, you know, um, you know, they say like, quote unquote, Western nation, but pretty much any nation uh, in the world, right, imprisons most of its people and does so in such a racially biased way, it really has been because of these different media echo chambers on the nature of crime, fear, and safety. And so I, I do worry about Me Too in that way. But in another way, I think the cultural change of saying, 
having been subject to, you know, a range of sexual misconduct from discomfort to, you know, extreme violence is not defining of a woman's life and is not something she needs to be ashamed of. Uh, I think that's the really important part. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that response. That's exactly what I was wondering and thinking about in terms of the potential, like you said, um, the liberatory as well as the oppressive potential of the Me Too movement and how it panned out. Um, I just want to say that this was a fascinating, very insightful conversation for me. And um, thank you so much, Professor Drupal. You've left us with a lot to think about and re-examine. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.